listening to Society Chats, the podcast of First United Methodist Church in Plano, Texas. You could have knocked me over with a feather. It was all but a voice from heaven that said, you need to be a pastor. Thanks for listening. It's good that you're here. I appreciate you taking the time today. So we're on Society Chats, and we're talking to our lead, Pastor Matt Gaston. And so the starting point, this has been with everybody, is just to talk a little bit about yourself and where you came from. For people who may not know, you know, when you're the pastor, a lot of times it's a little different because you end up sharing little bits and pieces uh, in your sermons or in conversations. And so people pick some of these things up or they may say it in a bio or whatever. But uh, curious about where'd you come from? Where'd you grow up? And then if you're not a native Texan, how'd you get to Texas? Because Texans always want to know, how did you get here? And like most folks, Micah, I wasn't born here, but came running as soon as I could. I'm a good Midwestern boy. Good is questionable, I suppose. (laughs) Uh, But born in Wichita, Kansas. Uh, My tribe is from Kansas and Oklahoma. Uh, Great, great, great grandfather on the Gaston side was part of the second Oklahoma land rush. So if you hear me talk with uh, reverence about all things OU, that's part of the reason why. Uh, my grandfather played on the freshman football team there. My dad walked on under Bud Wilkinson. And so I've always had a certain affection for things Oklahoma. But I also had a cousin who was the Lawrence, Kansas version of the San Diego chicken. He ran up and down the sideline as a rock chalk Jayhawk. So (laughs) I tend to just be sentimental toward all things Kansas and Oklahoma. Dad married mom. They, dad followed the oil industry. We wound up in Houston when I was eight years old, and Texas has been home since. Hook them. <laughs> At least until they play the Boomer Sooners. Right. So uh, Houston was where I grew up. Uh, went to college, uh, Harvard University, majored in economics. Uh, left there, wanted to see the world. Lived in Sitka, Alaska, working as a volunteer youth minister, ran a couple of small businesses, moved back to Houston to get to know mom and dad a little bit better. And uh, after that, went to seminary. And that's where life took a decided turn after a few years of muddling around. Sure. Yeah. These things happen, don't they? They do. <laughs> so for the I, I most I think most everybody has either met or knows Cammy. You guys have been married for how many years? So my wife Cammy and I met each other as students at the Perkins School of Theology at SMU, where we worked on our Masters of Divinity. Uh, we began dating within the first month or so of being there. And two years later, realized, well, this is only getting better. So we got married at the chapel there. Uh, we've been married 36 years uh, as of this last December. Wow. And along the way, we're blessed uh, with one child uh, named Blaine, uh, who's now 27. Uh, he works at Home Depot, and he works here on Sundays in the sound booth. and He does uh, a great a job. Little, doing a little of everything uh, that you ask of him um, in the audiovisual department. And we've uh, lived here in the Plano area now for five and a half years, though our circle of ministry has been around most of the conference uh, in, the, in the Dallas area. Uh, we, in fact, started 
uh, 36 years ago up the road at First United Methodist Church Allen, which is just four miles up the road. Mm. And we were there for uh, five or six years before she got appointed to First United Methodist Church Richardson. And I later got appointed to uh, start a new church from scratch, which she joined me in doing. Wow, an adventure. Great adventure. Now, give us kind of your call story, how you ended up. Because, uh, you know, I went home and I told uh, my wife, Heather, you know, here I met this church. This guy went to Harvard and studied economics. How in the world did he end up being a pastor? Because uh, those two things, they're not necessarily, it's not the, the logical conclusion to that, that path. So uh, just share with the folks, how did you end up here? What, what was the life turn that, that, that caused you to be here today? Yeah, Dad didn't think that was exactly the right path either. <laughs> Again, uh, followed the path of oil all the way to Houston. And my dad, the first person in his family to go to college, uh, was very proud, rightly, of the fact that he put all four of his kids through college. Mm. And he had a predetermination that that meant success. Mm. And it meant success in ways that he understood success which is cradle-to-grave um, relationship with a large corporation, preferably an oil company. Mm. Um, and so uh, when one summer I worked for Shell Chemical Company and did some econometric research for them, made presentations uh, effectively enough because they gave me two or three job offers for when I graduated uh, a year later. And when I didn't take those job offers but chose to go to Alaska and hang out for a year, which I parlayed into two years, and then I parlayed into four or five years of graduate school. My dad wasn't really excited about that turn, uh, but I became convinced during an internship at a local church um, where it was God was calling me, something I'd been asking for the better part of five years. Mm. And I'd figured out in college and then the year after college that there could be, and I suspected for some people, certainly myself, was a difference between what you should be doing and what you wanted to do. Hmm. In other words, what your family system or culture said you need to do that defines success versus what your heart's calling is. Hmm. And when I got clear about that, I began to ask God, what's my heart's calling? And when they told me at uh, seminary that I had to do an internship and work as a pastor for nine months, I said, no, I can't do that because I'm not going to be a pastor. That I was very clear about. I was not going to be a pastor. I'm going to go back and work for Shell. And they said, no, you don't have to be a pastor. You just have to kind of pretend you're a pastor for nine months and get graded on it. I said, I can pretend I'm a pastor. And so the first month into that internship, I get a call from the receptionist who says, there's a woman that needs to see a pastor. I said, I'm not that person. I'm the intern. And she said, well, you're the only one here. So I'm sending her down your way. And the woman comes in. I've not met her. She's part of the church. I think more on the, on the fringe of the church, but she's a member. I had not met her. Um, and she came in and said to me, my husband came home last night. He said, I don't love you. I am divorcing you. You get to keep the three kids. I'll pay for everything. You can have the house. Goodbye. I mm. said, and then she imploded mm. and she just cried. And she cried for the better part of 30 minutes as she told me her pain. 
And I, and I had just enough of pastoral care class 101 to not say anything, but just listen mm. and empathize and repeat back what I heard as her pain and to hand her Kleenex. And after about 45 minutes, she dried her eyes and stood up and said, thank you. You will never know how helpful you've been to me. And she exited. And I got to tell you, you could have knocked me over with a feather mm. because as soon as she walked out, it was as clear. It was all but a voice from heaven that said, you need to be a pastor. Mm. And the next day I called the district superintendent and said, I've experienced a call to ministry. What do I do next? And since I made that declaration, I have never given it a second thought. And there wow. has not been a day that I don't get up in the morning and say, this is what I get to do. And I cannot think of anything else I would be doing that is as satisfying, as exciting, as varied, as changing as what I've done now for, gosh, better part of 35 years. Wow. It's a great story. Thank you. Um, what do you think is your favorite part of what you get to do? Because like, people don't ask the pastor that. What, what do you like uh, the, the best about this job? And I know that's going to be a hard question for you to answer, but I'm asking it anyway. Well, except that I've had 35 years to think about it. <laughs> so I'm going to say three things um, that uh, are, are nearly equal for me in terms of what I love about this. One is that because you bear the title pastor, you have carte blanche into people's lives at some of the most critical moments of mm. change. They open the doors to you in a way they will not open to anyone else mm. outside of their immediate family and let you walk right in to mm. the joy or to the pain, the heartache, the uncertainty, and they share vulnerably and intimately with you. And that is a holy privilege that yeah. I never lose sight of. Um, the second thing I would tell you is the opportunity to work with amazing and similarly called people by virtue of their baptism and God's grace to do amazing things and to help position them and organize them to do things and to bring ex nihilo, something out of nothing mm. that makes a difference in other people's lives in a positive way. Mm. And after 35 years, I, I've grown to appreciate the importance of that where less and less of that seems to be obvious in our world. Mm. So to pull people together for out of common call for common cause uh, is just real joy. And the third thing is um, the, the sermon creation, the, the work of that every week. I just love the creative process that's involved there. The, the reading, the researching, the connecting between the, um, the textual the historical, the traditional, and then where people are in their lives. Mm. And uh, it's hard to do that week in and week out Yeah, uh, for that to be fresh and to try to keep that relevant. But I, but I love the challenge of, of creatively uh, pulling that writing together and to pull that message together and then pulling that off on, on Sundays. Yeah. Uh, it's one of those things that I don't know that people understand the level of of um, work and difficulty that's involved in that process. And uh, we're all appreciative of the work that you do and the great job that you do each week. But I think it's important for people to remember sometimes because, um, you know, I grew up around and in the church and in ministry and working on staff uh, as I'm doing here. And that seems to be a common misconception. Same misconception I faced when I taught 
uh, school as a public school teacher that people have this idea of, oh, well, you got this. Your job's not that hard. It must be nice to be able to just go play golf, you know, and it's like, okay, you, you, you try to do this week in and week out and to keep bringing this in, you know, week in and week out. Um, there's a lot to it and a lot of time invested in that. Um, well, and like teachers who really good teachers look like they're just spouting this stuff off without any previous mm-hmm. effort required mm-hmm. because they're so knowledgeable. After all, you're an expert in English or math or theater production mm. or philosophy. So you shouldn't have to study, but of course we're students all our lives. And for anybody that would question the the work of a good teacher or a good preacher only needs to be asked to go and deliver a 20 minute <laughs> presentation uh, without a lot of us and, and repetition and for right. it to be cohesive and to ask them, how easy was that? Right. And then to understand that if you're a good teacher or you're a good preacher, I don't know what it was, I don't know what it is for educators, but I know our rule of thumb in seminary for homiletics is you put an hour of research and preparation for every minute that you preach. Now, I've been doing this for a few years. I've been able to cut down on that. Sure. But when I add up the hours of reading, and longhand writing, in my case, uh, rehearsing it, getting it down. Um, it's not a minute for every, it's not an hour for every minute. Uh, but if I'm preaching a 25, 20, 25 minute sermon, there's 10 or 12 hours yeah. out of a 40 hour work week sure. that have been put into that task alone, along, alongside all the other tasks. Uh, I take it seriously. So what do you find to be the most difficult part of that process for you? What's the thing that, and, uh, you know, obviously, as you've mentioned, the beauty of experience and time is that you sort of uh, find a way to smooth out the rough edges over time. And so maybe maybe a better approach would be is that as you've gone through and learned uh, how to do this over the years, uh, what did you find to be the biggest obstacles to uh, being able to do this in a way that's very seamless and, and, to, and to cut some of that, that prep time down because you've, you've had the experience and time to learn how to do it better. I don't have to spend as much time in exegeting the texts mm-hmm. because they're, they're nearly all texts that I've exegeted before. Mm-hmm. And that is to say, uh, to lead out the meaning of the scripture, which was not written in English, but in Hebrew, Greek, and a little Aramaic, mm. and to find the, the best, truest interpretation of the text that you can, knowing full well you never get it 100%. Sure. Um, so I don't have to spend as much time there because I visited most of these texts before. Uh, the biggest challenge, is, for me anyway, is that I'm not as widely read as I would like to be. Mm. Uh, the, the, the congregation is so diverse, and even more so today than it was 30 years ago, for that message to be relevant where people sit who are Filipino or who are of mixed marriage or come from different socioeconomic backgrounds, uh, different reading lists, different interests— uh, I, I'm not nearly as well-read as I would like to. To be able to make real-world connections by illustrations and story mm. to reach more people, I, I wished I was better at that. Uh, but the challenge is to try to bring real-world examples to make this, which, was, which could seem so obtuse and theoretical and 
grounded in people's experience. Mm. That's what I, that's one of the reasons I didn't want to be a pastor. I just heard too many sermons I didn't think were terribly relevant. Right. And I wanted it to be pragmatic and, and life transformed because it hit them where they lived. And so that's, that's probably the hardest struggle is where, where do you find the stories? Where do you find the examples that help people connect with a biblical message? Yeah, absolutely. So what do you, and, and, and correct the, the terminology here if it doesn't fit, and it may not, but um, you preach a sermon. Uh, and as somebody who, who has done that before and who taught and has stood up in front of people, I understand the self-critique. And I understand that, you know, there's weeks that you feel like, oh, I, you know, this one kind of hit for me more. I felt more like disconnected than, than maybe three weeks ago or whatever. But kind of in that framework, what do you consider to be a successful, and you can't see because we're, but I did air quotes when I said successful. I don't know that successful is the best term, and you guys can't see Matt is shaking his head, no. But can you frame that for us in a way that, what makes you say this really connected as opposed to, eh, this one maybe didn't connect as much. Well, there's two answers. I'm a lousy judge is hmm. answer number one, because uh, the number of times where I have come home and uh, my wife, bless her heart, has heard more of my sermons than anyone. And because she's a pastor <laughs> and because she has heard a lot of other sermons of other people, I, I take her feedback seriously. And the number of times where I'll come home and say, man, I thought I just nailed that. I thought the concepts and the way it flowed, the illustrations, is you go, hmm, I didn't think it was that good. <laughs> and, and then there are times where I'll, think, I'll come home and tell her, oh, man, I just stunk the place up. And she or somebody else will say, oh, that was just so meaningful to me. That just struck me right where I was at, which tells me that they were right in seminary that the sermon isn't what I've got on paper. The sermon isn't even what comes out of my mouth. Mm. The sermon is what happens somewhere in the air between my speaking and the person's hearing in their life situation and what the Spirit does with their hearing and their perceiving in their life situation that is the sermon mm. for that person. And not too often does it seem to be terribly uniform mm. across uh, the, the congregation so I, I've given up trying to put too much emphasis on what's effective, and I've tried to put more emphasis on, was I faithful mm. to the message? Was I faithful to my goals? Because the end result is really hard to gauge. The other answer is, I feel like I've been more effective when I see the eye contact and mm. I see people following. Mm. And, I, and you get that sense, and you know this as a, as a public speaker, as a teacher, is your congregation, are they staying locked in with you in eye contact, maybe some head movement that tells you they're really listening? Mm. Um, and, of course, sometimes if you get the verbal or email feedback that's positive, that's helpful. Uh, but it's hard to know. I don't know about you as a teacher, but for me, it's, it's, it's hard to know uh, on any given Sunday. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about um, something that I know is close to your heart and that you're passionate about, and that's First United Methodist Church in Plano. Uh, so let's frame the question this way. Why would anybody want to come here to church of all the places? So tell us about this wonderful place, particularly for somebody that might have happened upon us and is hearing this and says, I don't even go to that church. You know, I'm from a different uh, place. Why, why would somebody want to come here? What's special about FUMC Plano? 
From a family perspective, I don't think the criteria is terribly different from when my folks dropped us into a United Methodist Church down in Houston when I was 10 years old, that the criteria was not about denominations. It was not about the name on the sign. Mm. Uh, For my parents, and as I've hence discovered, it's true for a lot of families, um, is the preaching decent? (laughs) (laughs) Is there something for my kids? Yeah. And are the people friendly? Yeah. And if those three criteria are checked, then this is probably a good place to call a spiritual home. And I don't think that criteria has changed very much, uh, except that families are defined very differently these days Mm. and have much more variety than what I grew up with in the 1960s. Uh, But I think at, at, at base, people are still looking for connections, relationships that are life-giving and not life-draining, that are authentic and are true and are loving. And I think on that baseline uh, for any church, I think we do well. Um, I think we do very well with integrity of worship, uh, Mm. substantive meat, uh, thought-out themes, uh, excellence in music, Uh, I'll take our children's ministry, I'll take our youth ministry, uh, I'll put it up against anybody's. Uh, And I think back to my Midwestern roots, what I love about this church is there's just a down-to-earth nature that uh, doesn't know what to do with pretense. Mm. Uh, We we pretty much are who you see us to be, whether we're um, in a leadership role or whether we're just meeting you over the coffee bar kind of what you see is what you get. And that's who I am. Um, my persona from being up there is really no different than you're experiencing right now. Yeah. And uh, that's that's really what this church has always been. And I appreciate that very much. So if a person is looking for a place of authenticity, of vital worship, a desire to grow, willing to be challenged uh, as they're being loved, I think this is a great place, and not just for uh, persons of one ethnicity or socioeconomic level, but from a variety of cultures, as our demographics reflect in this church. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yes, a place where people love you and that you can carry out your faith journey. Yep. In community. Yep. Yeah. So we are moving into a misty future in a way that none of us, I think, have ever experienced. So as the lead pastor, what is your thinking uh, and how has your vision shifted? And what is it that you see us moving towards that maybe is different or, or, or I guess I don't want to put words in your mouth. Can you articulate for us what is the future look like from your vantage point? I wrote a white paper two years ago called The Future Now Church, Mm. uh, two pages, where at the very outset of the pandemic, uh, I was already visualizing how church was necessarily going to be different. Uh, For kids like my kid, 27, uh, the millennials uh, that that are coming up, they you reference World War II. That's still mm. a touch point for you and me. Mm. But for uh, millennials forward, Gen X, uh, their defining points were 9-11 mm. and the Great Recession of 2007-2008. Mm-hmm. 
They've known nothing but a world that has security at airports and job uncertainty, even if you have a four-year degree. Mm. And those are their touchstones. And yet those touchstones were really short-lived in terms of time duration compared to what we've had now with the pandemic, uh, where high school students have lost effectively two years of formative experiences, mostly social, but also academic, that just got washed away. And this pandemic has created such a span of time that has shifted everything, never to go back the way way it was. Mm. And um, we have a word that we've used for a few years called liminal, uh, which simply means uh, we've had, we've been forced to let go of what was because what was has, has crumbled underneath us. And yet we can't see what's immediately ahead of us. And so this in-between space is one of high anxiety and uncertainty and fear, mm. um, but also the opportunity for great faithfulness. If we choose to believe the God who was with us before and is out ahead of us, um, to help us navigate this liminal space, much like the people of Israel, 40 years of Exodus. They had with, golly, with fingers being torn away, they had to let go of life in Egypt without knowing what life in the promised land was going to be mm. like. And all variously along the way, there was a lot of complaining. Yeah, Not unlike what we hear in all sectors of our culture right now, because we can't see what's ahead. Uh, I believe that we have the opportunity for real renewal. I believe we have the opportunity for a reestablishing the importance and the centrality of a faith that grounds us in the midst of shifting tides Mm. and climate change and cultural divisiveness uh, because the the one God becomes the one rock Mm. that we can all anchor ourselves to while we figure out where it is we're going. So I see 2022 forward as an opportunity to kind of reinvent ourselves. And as I've said in staff, and it's out there in the literature, uh, that if every church isn't treating itself as a new church start, it's going to miss the opportunity for renewal Mm. uh, that it has in front of it right now. And having been a new church planner, I know what that means. It means all hands on deck. There is no institutional luxury of thinking that somebody else, air quotes, is going to take care of it, whatever it is, the finances, the ministries, the volunteerism, that I can just come and be a consumer of what this institution provides. Those days really are, are, are behind us mm. for the churches that will thrive. Mm. Uh, so it only really renews for me the excitement of being able to give people the opportunity to connect in life-changing ways. Because what we know from Barna and Pew Research is that the number one thing that people are most concerned about in our culture is loneliness of mm. being disconnected and the mental health issues that are arising because, because of that. Yeah. Where, where better else than church to help connect or reconnect people to other people and their own passions and to live those out in life-changing ways? I, that, that gets me up in the morning, gets me excited for the next two years. Um, so we've got people who are looking to reconnect. And maybe people who haven't come yet, who are who are wanting to make uh, a connection. And as as we go through this process that you just described of um, shifting and changing, um, what are some ways that are practical that that people can 
plug in and uh, let, let me let me frame the question this way. It, it, for somebody who's listening to this that's uh, a member of our church, what can they do to help us move forward? Micah, do you remember Bring a Friend Sunday? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I do. <laughs> that goes all the way back to the Pony Express, yeah. which I resurrected with Freeborn Garretson, thanks to <laughs> no small part your help. Because sometimes what is old is new again, and we forget in institutional thinking that the church was Philip telling Nathaniel, you need to go see this guy. And Nathaniel saying, what good comes out of Nazareth? The first (laughs) great skeptic who comes and confronts Jesus. We forget in large churches, air quotes, that the church finally is only as strong as every member being a witness for Jesus Christ. Mm. So what's it look like to be thinking once we get this pandemic in our rearview mirror, what's it look like to have Bring a Friend Sunday? What's it look like to have Dinners for Eight? What does it look like to have a day where we're going to start a new all-church event and everybody gets the opportunity to invite one friend to come and enjoy this one event just to try it out? Yeah. But you keep hearing the phrase, every member gets the opportunity. Uh, that's the mentality we're going to have to have to be successful. The church that Cami and I successfully planted, uh, the story was told to me, a guest had come and having sat with their friend through the worship service, the announcements and the opportunities they had uh, afterward to sign up and partake, the guest was heard to say to the person that brought her, well, I get a sense if I sit around here very long, I need to be doing something. (laughs) And her friend told her, well, you've perceived accurately. <laughs> uh, this is not a sit on your hands faith. It never was. Yeah. And I think we're going to have to recapture that sense of high expectation and high excitement because there's high opportunity when we give and give of ourselves. And so having everybody fill out those acts of service, having people fill out pieces of paper in the middle of church on Sunday, having people do surveys in the middle of church are all designed to get our people thinking about how will I engage? Mm. How will I re-engage? How will I do something differently that I've never done before? Because I just think that'd be a lot of fun. Now we're getting on the track to church renewal. And that's where our future is. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Paul that said to Timothy, work out your faith with fear and trembling. Is that right? Did I get that reference right? I think that's about right. Yeah, Paul to Timothy, work out your salvation with fear and trembling as I think the King James Version or something like that. And I'm sure that the Greek words are are not quite as harsh sounding as those are. (laughs) Uh, But certainly this idea of working out your faith. It's funny to me, I grew up Baptist and the Baptists and the Methodists have not gotten along real well over the years because they have philosophical, very different approaches to the faith. And I can remember uh, as a kid hearing preachers and other people in the Baptist community say, those Methodists just like to do all the time. They just want to do, do, do. And they framed that in a negative context, which is interesting to me. Uh, But I think there's something to be said for that, that we're at a space now, especially as Methodists, to reclaim historically that faith is action. Wesley said there is no holiness apart from social holiness. There is no religion apart from social religion. So I proudly claim our DNA as being those that take the acts of piety and translate those 
into acts of mercy for the sake of the world uh, proudly. Mm. And I think that's a gospel that's well-suited, maybe better suited to theology that's better suited for our world than, than many of our sisters and brothers uh, in the Christian church. Yeah. So let's talk, these are the same questions uh, that uh, everybody that I've interviewed so far gets to answer these little fun fun, fun fact questions. Uh, and how you answer them is totally up to you. Um, but let's go through the, the process here. I think it's interesting to find out these things because it tells you something about the person. So the first question is three books that you would recommend to folks and why you might recommend those books. And they can be your favorites or it's, it's your answer. So, so what do you got? Uh, three books that I know were significant to me because of the degree I underlined things in them. <laughs> um, and two of them are religious, surprise. Uh, one of them is not. Uh, one is entitled Resident Aliens. That was written probably 20 years ago by Bishop William Willimon and Stanley Hauerwas, an ethicist at uh, Duke University. And they go back and forth about fleshing out what does it mean to be a Christian in an unchristian world? Mm. How do we maintain our integrity and identity as Christians um, who really, if we are serious about that, are forever going to be a little uncomfortable in the world around us? Mm. What does that look like? Uh, they do a wonderful job of helping walk through that. Um, another one that I found transformative, not just for myself, but for my, a couple, three congregations that I've used this with now, and it helps me tie my economic background and a real interest in things finance as a, as a major, if not the major piece of my faith journey. Um, and that is called Advent Conspiracy by, by McKinley, Say, and Holder. Um, and that's a marvelous book written by three pastors of a non-denominational church that really unpack in a very clear, understandable ways uh, how it is that we sin with our use of money in the American mm. culture mm. and how that is our God and how alternatively we might think about our money as a way to bring about a real saving grace to the world in amazing ways mm. called the Advent Conspiracy. Um, and I've, I've used that in the last three, four churches I've used, to, I've, I've uh, pastored to real success in moving the mindset of Advent, Christmas, and really the whole of the Christian life from one of consumption to one of mission. Mm. And I think that's a paradigmatic shift uh, that is helpful. And it certainly has been helpful to a lot of lifelong Christians. Um, Resident Aliens, Advent Conspiracy. And the third one's just for fun. Uh, here, month after the year that Larry McMurtry died, Lonesome Dove. Just one of the great, great novels from maybe Texas's greatest writer. Uh, read the book and read it to my son growing up, and uh, it's just such a great story about uh, what it was to be in Texas in the uh, toward the end of the eighteenth eighteenth uh, century, nineteenth uh, century. Just just grand, grand writing by Larry McMurtry. I know a lot of people that love that book. Mm -hmm. uh, I've actually never read any of those, but I did see the Lonesome Dove miniseries, Powerful. and it was very good. It was very good. So I'm sure the book was better. It, the book's always, always better, better than the movie. But speaking of movie. Oh, 
what uh you see that's pretty good nice i, I got my segues down um <laughs> what are your three favorite movies and why or do you have three favorite movies that's such a hard question. Just uh, that's like what everybody says. Three favorite books. <laughs> I mean, I, I can say just everything Star Trek, everything Star Wars. Well, no, not everything, but but some of them. <laughs> right. But I would just go off in those universes. But I'm gonna. I went ahead and picked out three that are none of those universes. <laughs> uh, my favorite movie above all of all time is Rocky. Uh, it's the. People forget that that the original won the Academy Award in 1976, yeah. and uh, the, the 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 rags to riches story, uh, never giving up, uh, love deeper than def than defeat. Mm. Uh, it was just a powerful movie. I've seen it probably 127 times, and I, every time I think he's just about going to win this time, but he never quite <laughs> does. He gets Creed. Uh, one, I love Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid. Oh yeah, the it's worth it for the soundtrack, uh, but the buddy nature of that film between Paul Newman and um, Robert Redford is just so rich, so nuanced. Uh, it's just so much fun. Uh, love that movie. And then one that most people have never heard of, except that I used bits and pieces of it a couple of years ago when I preached a summer series on God at the movies, uh, had. Um, Emily Blunt and uh, Matt Damon called the Adjustment Bureau. Oh, yeah. Which is one yeah. of the most creative and well written and well conceived and well acted movies that nobody's ever heard of. <laughs> and it's so brilliant because the creativity is just fascinating. But what it does brilliantly um, is it brings into sharp tension the competing philosophies, theologies of predetermination or uh, predestination and free will mm. and the clash of that that is everywhere in our culture, mm. uh, they bring it to a fine point of choice wins out in the name of love. Mm. And without the directors or producers ever knowing it, they could not have done a much better job of articulating the Armenian position that we hold as United Methodists that most United Methodists don't even realize they hold. Uh, this great, great gift of free will, this great, great gift of choice uh, for the sake of love. Uh, the Adjustment Bureau, I think, is uh, a, a beautiful, romantic um, uh, fantasy movie that everybody... It is a great film. I agree with you. And good choices. Good choices, for sure, for sure, for sure. I always think, if I think of Paul Newman, I always think of Cool Hand Luke. That's, oh, my gosh. That's probably my favorite or Paul Newman. Or The Sting. Newman. Oh, that's a great I, one, too. Yeah, 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 yeah. But The Adjustment Bureau, also a great, and I agree with you, underrated, and not seen enough film. So if you're listening, go watch The Adjustment Bureau. Check if you, it out. If you, and well, all those, if you haven't seen any of those, those are great films. So let's shift. I'm a musician, so I had to throw in the music question. Some songs or you could do bands if, you know, a lot of people go, I can't pick three songs because music is so important to me. Uh, but w w what'd you come up with? Some songs that are Im important to you and, and why were those things important to you? Thought that was going to be the hardest and it wound up being easier than I thought it was going to be. It did not take me long and you'll be pleased that they <laughs> weren't all pop. <laughs> um, and I asked myself, what are the songs that move my heart? Mm. 
sometimes to the point of tears, mm. because that's probably the best sign of what is most meaningful to me. There's lots of songs I like, yeah. but what are the ones that move me and the ones that consistently move me, no matter how many times I've heard it, mm. um, is the hymn, This Is My Song, uh, sung to the tune of Finlandia, mm -hmm. uh, which talks about this aspirational inclusiveness of all people around the world and the mutual respect of their dreams, their vision, their lands, their God, and accepting that and affirming that for the beauty that it is. Um, I, I move to tears every time I hear the much more recently written um, song by Mark Miller, I Choose Love, mm. taken from the words of a Jew who died in a Holocaust camp Mm. Uh, scratchings on the wall that Mark Miller turns into this song of uh, regardless of what is in front of us that we choose love and we choose God and I mm. choose to believe. Uh, I, I get teary-eyed every time I, I hear that song. And then one that is kind of related uh, in quick giveaway, it's one of my most favorite artists along with Neil Diamond. And I know it's a lot, it's like opera hot, uh, love hate relationship. Either love <laughs> or you hate. There's no in between. And it's the same for John Denver, who I absolutely love because he sang of the causes and the interests that I that I aspire for. It's it's mm. the environment. Yeah. And it's people coming together. And it's people coming together for common cause, not just to hear good music. Yeah. He wanted to change the world and he wanted to see people change the world. And uh, I'm a hopeless romantic that way. And he, I love so many of his songs, but poems, prayers, and promises, and things that we believe in is how that song starts off. And I think it articulates well um, so much of my wistful aspiration as a Christian and as a human being, something I realize I've had all my life. And what's the title of the song? Poems, Prayers, and Promises. Poems, Prayers, and Promises by, by John, John Denver. Denver. So this is my song, I Choose Love, and Poems, Prayers, and Promises. I'll have to look up. I, I, I may have heard that. I don't know. It's it's not ringing a bell for me right off. I don't know if that was a big hit for him or not, but... Uh, Modest. Yeah, okay. I'll have to look that one up because I do like John Denver's music. Um, I think Annie's song is one of the most beautiful things anybody's ever written. It is just a stunningly beautiful song. Uh, so, yeah, John Denver. Um the, and you may not have an answer to this, but that's okay. Some people don't. They say, well, it's fine. But uh, I'm going to ask you anyway. Uh, a Bible verse. Do you have, you know, some people talk about them like life verses, things that uh, have stuck with you, or maybe a passage or something that really has been important to you over the years. And I know those things tend to shift, but do you have any uh, Bible verse that kind of jumps out as one that really sticks with you? Easy. My pragmatism and desire to join the theoretical and the religious with the everyday pragmatic, uh, Ephesians 4.12, where the writer says, we are here to equip the saints for ministry of building up the body of Christ. Uh, that's my whole mantra as a pastor. Uh, I am to build up the saints, uh, to equip the saints for the building up of the body of Christ. And uh, if I do that faithfully, then I think I've done what I've been called to do. And, uh, and I'm thankful for that opportunity and for that calling.
Yeah, absolutely. Well, we're appreciative of the work that you do here as people of the church and uh, hope that uh, folks have gotten to know something new about you that maybe they didn't know before by listening to the podcast. And uh, what's the best way for folks to connect with you? What, what's the easiest way for them to connect with you? Email, phone, text, or? Yeah, email me uh, or call. I love early morning breakfast, early morning coffees. You cannot out early me. Uh, I have had six o'clock meetings. I've had five thirty meetings. I've had seven o'clock meetings. Um, I love to meet with folks to just chat, get to know their story. Uh, so email me. Uh, we'll find a time to get together. That would just be great fun for me. Excellent. Well, all that information is on the website, easy to get a hold of, or you can call the church office if you're looking to uh, find one of us. Uh, email also is on the website, so all that's out there for you guys. It's at fumcplano.org. It's fumcplano.org. Thanks for listening today, and we've been in conversation with our lead pastor, Matt Gaston. And Matt, thanks for the time. Man, I really appreciate the time taken. Uh, I'll look forward to having some further conversations here with the folks that call in.